I was, I wasn't expecting to become so intimate with nature because I was still living in a house, but the size of the house. And I think the way that I lived really invited me to, to feel connected in a profound way and in a new way for me. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 64 with none other than Dee Williams. The first tiny house on wheels I ever saw was Tammy Strobel and Logan Smith's house, and it was designed by Dee Williams and built by her company, Portland Alternative Design. In this wide-ranging interview, we start before Dee ever built her own tiny house on wheels and explore how this tiny pioneer chose to downsize into 84 square feet. Dee Williams was one of the first high-profile tiny house dwellers, and being first isn't always easy. So in this conversation, I'll talk with Dee about the initial reactions to her living tiny, how she found parking for her house, some of the unexpected benefits and challenges of living tiny, and we trace how the concept of home has changed for Dee over the years and what her next moves are. I hope you stick around. The Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast is brought to you by Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is my signature resource that helps you go from dream to plan to even building your tiny house. I'll tell you more about it after the show, but all you should know right now is that I'm offering 20% off for podcast listeners. Just head over to thetinyhouse.net slash THD and use the coupon code TINY. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD, coupon code TINY. All right, I am here with D. Williams. D built and moved into her first tiny house on wheels in 2004. Dee's house, life, and memoir, The Big Tiny, have been featured in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, CBS This Morning, and many others. Dee, welcome to the show. Hi. Good morning. And good, well, good afternoon to you from here on the <laughs> East Coast. Thanks for being here. I, there's so many things that I feel like we could talk about, but I wanted to get this, just start off by asking you, you know, what's the story behind why you decided to build and move into a tiny house on wheels all, all those years ago? Ooh, that's a loaded question. Cause you know, it's, it's kind of like when you ask somebody why they decided to get married, <laughs> you know, it's like, or why did you decide to break out of prison? Um, and so, you know, one of the biggest reasons was that, uh, I had taken a trip to Guatemala and kind of had a chance to kind of see how most of the world lives. And I returned home to my big house in Portland, Oregon. And I had just purchased a new, I think it was a new refrigerator or an oven or a dishwasher. I can't remember what it was. It was like 500 bucks. Um, Cause it would really trick out the kitchen. You know, it would really pull it all together. And um, that 500 bucks could have bought a new solar pump house for this village I was in in Guatemala. It could have afforded um, more food, more tools for um, farming, could have got, gotten a couple of pigs or something like that for this village. And all of a sudden there was just this, you know, schism between 
kind of where my heart was in wanting to support good social programs and environmental programs in the world and where I was actually putting my money and time, which was in my big house, you know, remodeling, um, buying stuff that I, I didn't really use that often. And I, I just needed to change that. Um, so that was one reason is really kind of wanting to walk my talk, you know, personally, socially, environmentally different. And then uh, another was uh, I was diagnosed with a serious heart condition and um, was told that I was just going to get sicker and sicker. So I was feeling like, well, what am I going to do if I get really sick and I can't work? I won't be able to pay my mortgage. Uh, I'm, I'm going to end up in somebody's living room in one of those hospital beds. I'm going to lose everything I've worked so hard to get. So I, I was like, I, I got to change this. I want to, I want to live debt free so that I'm, if, when I get sick, I'm not freaking out about creditors and other things, or, you know, by proxy, having my family and friends have to deal with that stuff. So I, I happened to read an article on Jay Schaefer, who had built a tiny house in Iowa. And I saw a picture of it was like a one page thing in Natural Home Magazine. You know, it was in a big article, it was like two paragraphs, and I was completely smitten by Jay and his tiny house, actually. <laughs> don't tell him that I don't want it to go to his head. Okay, I don't know if he listens but, um, to the show. <laughs> So that was the genesis of the whole idea was, you know, I wanted to, it, something in seeing Jay's house uh, and seeing that he kind of looked like a normal guy. He didn't look, you know, crazed. Uh, he did he, you know, he, he looked like a pretty normal, good looking guy. So I was like, well, maybe I can be a normal, you know, gal and do the same darn thing and get out from under my debt and live the life that I really want to live. That sounds really scary. I mean, the, no. the heart, I mean, the heart condition. And I think that plenty of people have moments where they say, you know, I'm not really putting my money where my mouth is. I'm kind of obsessed with remodeling or with cars or with whatever. But they don't always then take the step, like the courageous step to actually change. Well, I think there's a fine line between courage and being a ding dong, you know? So, I mean, you know, the, the very first, and this is just a um, kind of a, you know, just so you understand what I'm saying. It's like um, the first TV thing that I was on was entertainment tonight. And the, the episode, and these are little short segments of people doing what they do in the world. And it's very entertaining. But right before they, they talked about my story of building a tiny house, they talked about this guy that tied a whole bunch of helium balloons to a lawn chair and floated off and then kept going and had to be rescued. I think he floated out to sea or something. So just to put it in perspective, you know, there's, there's a fine line between doing something that is, is very courageous and doing something that's kind of foolhardy and um, I think I vacillated between those two uh, during the entire build. <laughs> well, I mean, also not nobody was really doing that at the time. There weren't tiny house TV shows or blogs and websites, and you know, tiny 
say the word tiny house to someone and that had almost no meaning at that point. Did you have friends who were skeptical, family who was skeptical? Like, how did you kind of convince people that you were doing something worthwhile? You know, I don't, I don't know that I convinced anybody of anything other than the fact that I was still working on that darn uh, taco truck. You know, they, I had, you know, neighbors stop by and ask if I was building something to take to fairs to sell, you know, lattes out of one of the windows or something and like a coffee cart. And, um, you know, you know, when I explained, no, I'm going to move into this, they were just kind of like, ah. And then I'm sure as they walked away, they're like, well, that's never going to happen. Or, you know, you'll go crazy in a matter of weeks or days. But, um, you know, I was, I was pretty determined and I, I have a group of friends and my family who are super supportive of all sorts of shenanigans, you know? So for example, when I was in graduate school, I decided I was going to do this water saving project by not washing my clothes anymore. So I would just wear dirty clothes into the shower and soap up from there. And you know, I told my friends that I was doing this and, you know, it's my experiment and water saving and, you know, they kept checking in and like, Oh, how's, you know, you smell normal. How's that clothes washing thing going? I'm like, Oh, it's going really well. And then I, I had the misfortune of getting into the shower with a pair of jeans on one time and almost snapped a hip trying to get them off after they got wet. You know, and that, that's when I decided that, you know, saving water was a health risk. Does that answer your question in an abstract way? Put that idea in the same category as <laughs> tying a bunch of balloons to your chair and floating away. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> did you know where you were going to park it when you built it? I did not. Um, I didn't, I didn't know where I was going to park it when I was building it. And then you know, over, over the time that I was building, I would, I would go to friends' houses for dinner and stuff like that. And I would just kind of casually crane my neck to look outside into their backyard and see, see if there was a possibility of getting my house into their backyard. And I, I just wasn't sure where it was going to be. I knew I wanted to live close to some friends. Um, but I wasn't sure who or what it would look like. And I was so focused on, you know, just trying not to fall off the roof while I was roofing and, you know, not light my shoes on fire when I was cutting metal with a rotary saw that I just didn't really put a lot of energy into what was going to happen after I finished. And then one day I was walking with a friend of mine, Annie, and she's like, well, do you know where you're going to put your house? And I'm like, no, I haven't quite figured that out. And then I kind of being cheeky, I was like, oh, I'm just going to put it in your backyard. And she looked at me and she stopped and she's like, that's exactly what we were hoping for. And, and so that kind of sealed the deal. It wasn't my ideal spot. You know, it was kind of a lumpy spot pinched into the corner of a small yard along an alley. I had envisioned being under giant trees in the middle of nowhere, but it ended up, I lived there for 13 years in the same spot. I would take the house out every once in a while, but that 13 years completely changed me. And um, it ended up being a perfect spot to land. Yeah, it seems like you almost 
stumbled upon something that people are now really looking for, which is the sense of community and the idea of having, you know, several tiny houses or just people living around a piece of shared property or shared resources. Yeah. And I think that's happening more and more. I mean, um, it's kind of like if you look at things like tool libraries, you know, they have a lot of tool libraries in Portland and you, you join by neighborhood. So if you don't live within a certain zip code, you, you can't rent or check out tools from the tool library. And I think that sense of community living can happen, whether you're living in a community with a bunch of tiny houses all in one parcel, or you just get to know your neighbors. You know, it's like we live in apartment complexes and there, there are some folks that live in the same apartment for years and only know people by their pseudonyms like uh, cat lady or, you know, black hat guy or, you know, saxophone dude or, you know, these names that we make up for people based on what we hear or see or smell or, you know, but we don't actually get to know those people and live in community with them, sincerely live in community with them. Yeah, that's definitely a, a benefit that we don't always think about. Were there, what were some of the unexpected benefits or, or downsides that you found from living in this little house on wheels for, for 13 years? Well, there were, there were, there were lots of benefits and, and also lots of things that, you know, were challenging sometimes, you know, what I, what I, you know, kind of started to do is just view it as an experiment, you know, life as an experiment. So as an example, trying to figure out how much utility I could draw off of a 240 watt solar electric system. It's like, I realized I can't run a power drill and, uh, or a waffle iron, even though I never tried a waffle iron coffee grinders kind of pushing it, you know, there are all these, you know, things that you discover or, you know, trying to figure out how to get my dog up a steep ladder into the loft. You know, we figured it out like a circus act, you know, like, Oh, I'll try. Okay. I'm going to, grip under your butt. No, that's not going to work. No, you can't move. You have, you know, it's like this circus act and you practice and practice and pretty soon you've got enough muscle memory that you don't really even think of it anymore as an experiment. It's just what you do in the morning. I've, I've had a lot of friends that have, you know, backpacked and after a while, you know, getting up in the morning and packing up a wet tent is just something that you do and and instead of feeling anxious about it or grumpy about it it's just what you do so i think a lot of the challenges were were like not having running water trying to figure out where to shower um and that and how to deal with a composting toilet those are those are stretchy challenges for me at first and after a while it just became routine and then some of the benefits I think were for me that were most surprising was, you know, I've always been an outdoor girl, but all of a sudden, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm sleeping in this loft, looking out a skylight window and, and those incidental moments between kind of being fully awake and kind of still being asleep, but rolling over and looking out the skylight window and seeing, you know, the moon doing something crazy or, you know, rolling over and seeing raccoons ripping the corn off of every 
stock that I had in the garden and I'm like up in the loft throwing flip-flops at the raccoons to get them to go away. It's like, I was, I wasn't expecting to become so intimate with nature because I was still living in a house, but the size of the house. And I think the way that I lived really invited me to, to feel connected in a profound way and in a new way for me, you know, I I felt really connected. I could tell when it was four o'clock in the morning because uh, the barometric pressure would shift and this cold air would kind of float in across the bottom of the windowsill by my bed and just kind of hover uh, a few inches above the floor. It was it was just this crazy change that I could feel. And I, I really was surprised by that. That's a huge benefit and continues with me. Just that sense of being more in tune to the natural world. Natural world and also my, you know, my human community too. I mean, I moved into a backyard and got to take care of an 80 year old woman and I got to see her at the end of her life. And I think it, um, I'm not sure I'm guessing, and maybe a therapist would be helpful here, but I, I think it helped me deal with my own mortality, my own guess at what congestive heart failure was going to bring me. And Rita the older lady that I was helping to take care of from my, from the backyard, she, she did, she was funny and sassy and um, had a routine that, that I just felt so lucky to be a part of up until the day she died. And, and I would hope to be able to model that grace and humility in, in the same way that she showed. For those who are listening to this, obviously, they're not looking at photos of Dee's house like I am, but it's probably likely that they have seen your house. They just don't know it. So I was hoping you could just kind of run down the stats, you know, what what is the size, the length with those kinds of details? Sure. So, you know, my aesthetic is kind of, I like, you know, cabin in the woods, you know, with a little curl of smoke coming out the chimney and pine trees all around it and a lake in front and, you know, animals playing badminton at the side and whatever. And, you know, so that's my aesthetic is, is kind of a cabin-esque kind of thing. And so when you walk up to my house, that's kind of what it looks like. It's got cedar cladding on the outside. It's about 13 and a half feet tall. It's a gable roof. So a little pointy roof. And, it's built on a 14-foot trailer, but the first two feet of that trailer uh, at the back end of the trailer is a, is a front porch. And then the loft, the sleeping loft, kind of juts out over that porch, so it creates like a little roof. So the house itself is, is only about 12, 12 feet by 7.5 feet. So it's, it's not, not that big. Um, you walk into the house and the kitchen is on the left and it's just a five foot countertop with a round ceramic sink cut into the, the middle of it and a one burner stove to the right of that. It's a, a marine stove that's kind of built into the countertop. So it sits flush with the countertop and, uh, the loft, the sleeping loft is above your head. And it's, it's just, it's such a cool space because it's got, 
exposed cedar, you know, floor joists for the loft, um, and then cedar flooring for the loft. So you walk in and you've got this just really cool natural wood above you, and then it's all around you too. So it's all framed out or, and um, sheathed on the inside with knotty pine, um, quarter inch uh, knotty pine. So kitchen's on your left when you first walk in. Uh, there's a composting toilet to the right. And then a little tiny closet that I put all my little tiny clothes in. And um, in the bottom half of that, I've got a, a big solar battery and um, the controller and stuff like that and an inverter for my solar electric system. And then, so essentially from the door, you take a couple steps and bingo, baby. You're standing in the great room. You're out from underneath the loft and, you know, you can see the, the peak of the roof. Uh, there's a big skylight right there and a couple of other windows. And it's, it's only, you know, the floor space is about the size of an elevator. But it doesn't feel like an elevator because of the windows and because of the pitch of the ceiling. The ceiling's, you know, 11 feet above your head. And so you've just got this great, great volume. So, so that's kind of it, you know, that's, there's not much more to it. You know, if you, you pull the ladder out and crawl up to the loft, there's enough room for a double bed. Um, there's a little crank out window at the head of the bed and then another big skylight over the bed. So it's, it's pretty small. It weighed about, uh, the last time I weighed it, it weighed 4,200 pounds. And, um, it was, it was super easy to pull around and tow. It was, it was a, a wonderful house to be able to live in. And then, um, after living in it for about 13 years, I drove it to Colorado and gave it to my nephew and he's living in it now in Colorado. Awesome. I want to ask you about that, but I also first want to ask, you know, there are now tiny houses, tiny houses on wheels that are three times the length of your original tiny house. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on that. Well, I, um, everybody's different in what they need and what they want. I mean, they're there. I have to admit, and don't, don't tell anybody this. They might hear it. Um, I know I, I, I do have some curiosity, I guess, around why people need, something that big but everybody is different and then you know another curiosity is if if you need that much space why make it on wheels you know so it's just a curiosity i i think at least for me when i've worked with clients who you know want me to help them design a space i really hope to be able to encourage them to re-examine the difference between what they want and what they need and w what they think they need. So uh, a lot of times here, here's an example in my house, I built in, um, in an area where I was supposed to have a refrigerator, but I, I measured wrong and the refrigerator wouldn't fit. And I just used a cooler for 13 years and it worked fine. But in that area where the refrigerator was supposed to go, I just made it storage. And then I had, um, you know, storage in the, in the kick plate underneath the kitchen counter. And 
above the wall, kind of between the rafters uh, or the joists for the loft built into the wall. So I had all this storage and ultimately I didn't have much to store. I had way too much storage, but, you know, I was used to what I needed in a big house and what I could have in a big house because of space. And I designed the house around that. Um, the same goes with the amount of electricity that I thought I needed um, to run day-to-day -day things. So I'm not talking about a power drill or occasionally firing up a waffle iron. I mean, lights and gadgets that I used all the time. And so I sized the solar electric system to accommodate what I thought I would need. And ultimately, I had way more electricity than I could ever possibly pump out of the battery because I only had a couple of lights that I used. And all I ever plugged in was my computer or my cell phone. So, you know, we get used to kind of a, an idea of what we need. Like we need a dishwasher and we need a washer dryer all built into the same space when, because that's the way our, our houses in the United States are often configured. When in reality, you know, I was committed to using the laundromat. And over time I was able to start using Rita, my neighbor's washer and dryer. And I was able to cook big meals at my friend's houses and use their freezers if I wanted to get popsicles. So I, I jobbed and I sourced a lot of that stuff out, which made my house smaller. And so, so that's what I would, I, I would be curious about with some of the bigger houses is like, do you really need all of that stuff? And could you be happy 320 days out of the year instead of 364? Yeah, I think that's a great answer. It's just a matter of what people think they need and hopefully they can spend some time exploring that before they commit to building a house of any size. Right. You know, so after after I gave my, you know, 86 square foot house to my nephew, you know, I moved into a 56 square foot house. And a little tiny house configured completely different. And I can, I can describe that later if you want me to. But, you know, when I, when I moved into that space, I knew I was going to be tethered to a big house a little bit differently because there was less space. And then as fate would have it, I fell in love and this guy was hanging out. He's six foot two. So he was in that space with me a lot as well. And I, I just, when I designed this space, I never imagined that I'd share anything with anyone ever. No, I'm kidding. But you know, I just never, never thought that I would, you know, have somebody want to move in. And, and so that, that made that space impractical in some ways. It, it's still a lovely space and I still use it a lot, but I don't, I don't live in it with, with my husband. Well, we've just, we've fast forwarded through a lot of time and I want to, no, it's great. It's great. <laughs> um, it's hard to talk in like chronological order. Um, so what, um, what led you to decide that after, you know, 13 years that you were ready to, you know, pass your 
your first tiny house on wheels off to someone else? Um, well, there were a lot of things, you know, I think I was, um, you know, I had, I had had the privilege of, you know, living in this really cool tiny house that brought me so many surprises. Like I never would have imagined that I'd own my own company, Portland Alternative Dwellings to help other people design and build houses and to teach workshops. Never, ever didn't build a house for that. Never saw that as a part of my life. And it happened and it's just been amazing. And I never imagined that I'd get to write a book and I got to do that. I never imagined that I'd get get to meet so many amazing people and become um, part of the discussion on, you know, homelessness or affordable housing. And I so all of those things kind of were amazing and and that ride was fantastic but you know I built I built my first house in order to accommodate kind of stepping into my life style in a slower gentler way so that I could put put my energy and time toward the things that I was really passionate about like hiking and you know pulling ivy with a volunteer group and using my money to help build solar electric arrays in little villages in Guatemala, you know, I, I wanted to put my time and energy toward certain things. And as I got busier and busier doing tiny house stuff, I, I wasn't able, I, I kind of lost track of some of those other dreams that I had built a house for to begin with. And so my nephew was getting ready to start graduate school. He, he was a raft guide in Colorado and a, a Knowles instructor. Um, that's the um, outdoor leadership school. Uh, and he was living in a tent and, you know, he was happy as a clam, but offering my house to him just felt like this cathartic, awesome thing for me to kind of step out from underneath the little house a little bit and to also start him off on, you know, his own journey of graduate school, being able to read a book and sit up straight and not be in a tent. So it felt like the right thing to do at the time to, to let go of the house. And it, it also just felt like all of the same feelings that I felt when I first was you know, designing and building my house. Just this giddy excitement around the unknown and uncertainty of like, am I going to regret this? I may be shooting myself in the foot, but hot damn, this is going to be awesome. And so, you know, it's kind of that, you know, one part how to, you know, let go and two parts, why not, you know? Like one part how to, two parts why not on letting go of of my house and changing things around there. Does that make sense? I can't even remember if that was the question. Yeah, that <laughs> definitely made sense. The house that you built after you, did your first tiny house have a name? Yeah, it was called The Little House. The Little House. <laughs> hey, when you're first, and that was when just... you're first, you can go with a name like that. Yeah, it's funny because that's just what we all called it. 
at at my friends, you know, who's who's, I you know, I was parked in their backyard, and you know, people would ask, you know, hey, I heard Dee's living with you guys, and and they would be like, no, 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 she's in the little house, so it just kind of became the little house. Nice. And so the next house does have a name. Yeah, we named her Jolene. And I actually built her a couple years before uh, I moved into her. And so Jolene is, you know, it's essentially a seven and a half by eight foot space with a couch that pulls out. It's got like a, a scissor framing that allows you to just pull it straight out into a double bed. It's got a a little kitchen counter to make like a cup of tea or a simple meal like soup or something and a writing desk and a a little compost toilet that looks like a bench. So I sit on that. It's, you know, it's got a lid on it so you can't tell it's a toilet. Uh, So I sit on that when I work at the desk and then I slide it out of the way. I can drop the desk down and slide it out of the way and it becomes secondary seating when someone comes to visit me. That's what I like to call it, secondary seating. Um, it's got a little curved roof and uh, it's about, I think all told, 10 feet off the ground and it is seven and a half feet wide. And like I said, about eight feet long. It's built on a 10-foot trailer, so the front two feet is is a front porch. And it's Don Vardo, is 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 that the correct name for a for a shape like that? Yeah, we call it well her nick yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The Don Vardo. And we came up with that if you've ever heard of Don Pardo. It's like a long time ago, a game show host and this is what happens when you have a bunch of people over and you're sitting around a campfire drinking beer. Let's call it the Don Vardo. And a Vardo, uh, that's V-A-R-D-O, Vardo, is just a style. So if you've ever heard of, you know, bungalow or um, what are some of the other, a Cape Cod, you know, it's a style, it's a style of house. So a Vardo is a little curved roof. It's not as steeply curved like a, it's not like a chuck wagon or a covered wagon or like a bow top. It's, it's a very gentle curve. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a lovely little space. And I actually got to see it in person uh, in 2014 at, at WDS. That's right. That's right. Did you dance in there with everybody else? Um, you know, I think I just waited in, in line at the fairgrounds for a while. <laughs> It devolved into, I think we had 17 people in there all dancing. And it, the whole thing was like, it really gave the shocks a good workout. It was great. So you lived in the Don Var- Well, you lived in Jolene full time for, for a period of time? Yeah. Yeah. For two years. And, um, and that was working out pretty pretty good. We, I moved out of the backyard that I had been in, uh, across town, which was a a matter of like two miles in Olympia. That's all the way across town, um, into, uh, another backyard and behind a house that was shared by my niece and her boyfriend. So the way that Jolene, 
the Don Bardo works out is that, you know, it's, you, you have to have access to a kitchen, really. The, the ki- kitchen counter is so small that it, it's practical for making tea and maybe soup, but not for prepping food and actually making a decent meal. So the way we set up the big house with my niece is, you know, Kelly and I could access through a back door into the bathroom and kitchen area without disturbing um, Samantha and Aaron. And, and that worked out really, really well, um, except it was kind of cramped in the Vardo with, with Kelly and my dog. And, you know, like a pair of shoes was a tripping hazard, really. And, you know, if you were reading a book, you had to be sure to shelve it after you finished reading it kind of stuff. And at kind of at the same time, this is after a bit of time, um, my niece and her boyfriend were kind of wanting to have their own space. They didn't, it wasn't that, you know, we didn't get along sharing the kitchen and bathroom. I think, you know, they're a young couple and they just, I think they wanted to be able to cook naked or something. It's a guess. I know Kelly and I did, so maybe I'm projecting. You gotta watch out when you cook naked, you know, with the hot, hot, uh, Serious hot pants. That's why they invented <laughs> aprons. But then you're not really fully naked. <laughs> well, naked enough for it to count. <laughs> ah, I love this interview. <laughs> so what happened from there? So you've got three three people, two people and a dog, and dogs are people too, in this in this tiny little Jolene. And so where where are you now? Well, the cool thing is um, Samantha and Aaron are still here in town. They found a really cool, swanky apartment, and I hope they're doing all the cooking they want there. And um, Kelly and I ended up moving into the big house. It's, it's about 600 square feet. And um, so we kind of live in there. That's where we sleep. And then we use Jolene, who's still parked where she was, as uh, my writing studio. Um, we'll sleep out there every once in a while. And then we've also invited guests when they come to visit to sleep out there. And they love it. You know, it's such a sweet space. And it's really nice that the house that the the 600 square foot house that we have doesn't really accommodate guests sleeping very well. Um, they could, you know, we could offer them a sleeping mat and a, you know, sleeping bag, but we, there's not really space for a guest room or guest bed really. So, you know, Jolene is that space. She's a little sanctuary. And, you know, if, you live with other people every once in a while, you just need your own space. And so Jolene has become a place that, you know, if Kelly is practicing music, playing the same chord over and over and over again, I can go out to Jolene and do my own thing. I don't have to feel trapped next to his guitar playing. And it's been a gift. It actually has, has made living in a, in a tiny house. And, and I would consider 600 square feet pretty small. It's not tiny, but it, it's a small house. And it has given us, uh, you know, the privilege of having 
more space than we really need while accommodating other people. I love that, how just how adaptable tiny houses are, you know, as as our lives change, which inevitably they do, they just, tiny houses seem like they're so much more adaptable. Like, you know, you don't have to just sell your house and buy a new one. You could bring it with you or use it as a guest space or a refuge instead of just, you know, being done with it. Right, right. Kelly and I are getting ready to move to Boulder, Colorado, and we're looking at rental houses right now. And I just feel so lucky that we have Jolene because we'll be able to find a place that's small and can accommodate our needs. And, you know, Kelly works at home, so he needs to have an office space. And, you know, he records music as well and needs to have space for that. And I'm a writer, so I need space for that. And a woodworker, so I need space. It's like we have all of these functions that we want to accommodate. And, you know, we could look for a big house that could, you know, put us all under one roof no matter what we're doing. Or we could look for something teeny tiny and uh, have Jolene and continue to use her the way that we've been using her as a overflow, you know, for function and overflow for guests. And it just gives us a lot more versatility than I and and flexibility than I I think we would have otherwise. So I will say that all of the plans, I believe, for for the Don Vardo Jolene and also for for your little house. Yeah, we're calling it, I think for the sake of plans, we're calling it the Cozy Cabin. The Cozy Cabin. Those are all available through PAD. Yeah, through PAD. Could you tell tell us about PAD? What what is it? What do they what do you do? Sure, sure, sure. So we started we started PAD. I started it with a friend of mine who's an amazing Finnish carpenter, Katie Anderson. And um, because I was getting a lot of requests to design and build, but you know, I'm a I'm a decent builder, but not a great builder. And Katie is a great builder. So we started Portland Alternative Dwellings, that's PAD, um, to help design and build houses. So I would help design and kind of hand the plans off to Katie and she would crack it open. So there, Tammy uh, Strobel, if you know her from Rowdy Kittens, uh, was one of the first houses I designed and then Katie built it for her. And it's a beautiful house. And it was the first tiny house on wheels that I had ever seen, Tammy's house, which inspired my tiny house. Oh, awesome. I love how small the world is. It's beautiful. Yeah, that house turned out great. And uh, Tammy and Logan, Tammy, Tammy's husband, Logan, they they really loved that house and it really served them for a long time. So that, that was the genesis of PAD. And then after a few years and several builds and some workshops, we started doing build workshops. So we'd invite people to participate in learning how to use power tools and say, build the foundation of a tiny house on wheels. And the reason, the reason I wanted to do that was, was really to show people how to do some of the engineering. And I, I had studied architectural engineering and, I was really concerned about folks building tiny houses on wheels, but not really understanding some of the dynamic stresses on a wood structure that's stapled to the top of a metal trailer. 
And so when I was designing my house, I spent a lot of time looking at the building specs for building in a certain kind of earthquake zone and a hurricane zone so that you're using the right kinds of fasteners to connect the wood structure to the metal trailer and then also to kind of tie the wood structure all together so it doesn't, you know, bounce off the trailer or get ripped off the trailer when a big semi goes by if you're taking it on the highway or bouncing through an apple orchard. So I wanted to teach workshops through PAD to, to really focus on engineering, moisture control and ventilation, which is really tricky in a tiny space. And some of the other, you know, kind of challenges that like code enforcement, zoning, DOT regs, plumbing, all of the stuff that kind of goes into a small space, tiny house on wheels, that's that's really different than a traditional house. So I, th I think there's there's a misnomer out there that if, if you know how to build a house, you can build a tiny house on wheels. And it really, it, it there there's much more to it than that. So that was that was the that was the reason we started Pad, and then after a while, Katie didn't want to build anymore. She's a fine furniture worker, so she wanted to do more of the high end fine furniture stuff. And I partnered up with a woman named Joan Grimm, who had run a couple, had started and run a couple of businesses. She's an environmentalist, has just a brilliant uh, eco brain and is fantastic with people. So she and I partnered up to do PAD 2.0 and continue doing workshops and design. And more than anything else, and I, I think you've done this, Ethan, is pull people together. You know, how do you, how do you talk about this stuff? How do you get information out? And how do you pull people together to share what they've learned and what they're fearful of and what they're hopeful for? And how do we how do we change our communities and how we live by partnering up with each other, by sharing knowledge and fun, you know, how do we have fun while we're trying to change the world, you know? So that was, that was Pat. I'm having fun talking to you right now for what it's worth. Oh, I'm having fun talking to you. I wish you lived down the street. Do you have any exciting projects coming up? I do. As a matter of fact, uh, through the World Domination Summit, and I love that name. It's WDS this year in Portland, Oregon. They have all of these, what they're calling academies, so these kind of breakout classes, and one of them is going to be on alternative housing, so tiny houses on wheels, uh, co-housing, uh, multi-generational co-housing, that is, um, little pocket communities, so clusters of say a big house with tiny houses behind it, ADUs or accessory dwelling units, just talking about, and, and RVs as well, just talking about how people are choosing to live full time in a little bit of a different way than an apartment or a normal house that, that we kind of are traditionally used to. So that session is happening on June 27th in the morning and it's open to the public. I think it costs 29 bucks to get in the door and it's three hours long. And we're going to talk about code. We're going to talk about kind of some of the pros and cons with each of these models and just to help people understand the lay of the land for these, these different options and which one might fit for them. I love that. And I think that I'm really happy to hear that 
it's about alternative housing models and that includes tiny houses on wheels but is not limited because you know the last thing that i want to have people come away with is the idea that you know the only way to live small is in a tiny house on wheels because that's just not true oh yeah i mean i'd love to live in a tree house i'd love to live in a yurt i'd love a really cool sprinter van or a tricked out converted van I'd like a school bus. You know, I mean, I'd like a teepee. There are all these different ways that people live and have lived. And, you know, tiny houses on wheel are are one and they're so darn cute. You can they they're like the puppies of building. But so are tree houses and yurts and vans and RVs and all these other forms of living. Well, at the 2014 WDS, um you gave a really wonderful talk, which I will link to in the show notes for this episode. But the takeaway, the the thing that I remember writing down was to be a superhero for the people around you and for the people in your life. And when you are a superhero, that requires that you show up and that you you have courage. Even you know, even if you're scared, you you are courageous. Right. And I was curious what what does that look like for you these days? How are you a superhero in your, in your world? Thank you for asking that question. I love, I love the thought of that. And I love asking that question. And I, I like asking it better than answering it, um, <laughs> to be honest. But, um, you know, I retire, I worked for the Department of Ecology, Washington State Department of Ecology for 27 years. And I retired in August last year. And, um, and it's been a big adjustment going from, you know, looking at how stuff is made. So uh, I was a hazardous waste inspector. So, you know, I have a lot of knowledge about how, what it takes to make a memory foam mattress or a sheet of plywood or cold rolled steel roofing or, uh, you know, all of the things that go into building a trailer or a tiny house or an RV. I've, I've had a chance to see how it's made. And so, I retired and then the next month started a consulting firm to uh, help businesses. And actually, I'm just starting to get into the building trades to talk about uh, sustainable materials. So there's a big push for something called LEED certification. So if you're going to build a building, make it as green as possible. You know, use green building materials and practice certain ethics and practices for water conservation, uh, energy conservation, and stuff like that. So I've just started really trying to focus on taking what I learned in uh, over 32 years of hazardous waste stuff and applying that to the building industry. And There's this overlap between what I do at PAD, what I used to do at Ecology, and what I want to do with my new consulting business. So that makes me feel like a superhero. If I can figure out a way to combine what I know and continue to offer that in a way that's helpful, I feel like that's good for good for me. It's good for the environment. It's good for my community. So that's one thing. And then I have also just started doing, you know, service projects. So I started something called Pizza Lady and essentially I buy a lot of pizza and I take it out to the folks who are sleeping outside, especially on cold, rainy, shitty days and deliver pizza 
I just walk around and give people pizza, pizza lady. And that makes me feel good. I've met a lot of amazing people who are doing the best they can with what they have. And, um, and then I'm also doing just silly stuff. So I've got, I got to go to New Zealand and help teach a tiny house class in Australia to a big tiny house festival. And that makes me feel like I'm showing up as best I can to support kind of where the movement is now. And then I'm, I'm doing little stuff like my neighbor got a new dog. And so I'm going to go down tomorrow and build a fence for her. So her dog won't get out anymore. So, you know, I'm trying to participate in my neighborhood to the best that I can. You know, I, I actually kind of love it having enough time on my hands to be able to say, Oh, I can build that fence for you. I would say that you have achieved superhero status for me and for so many people who have been inspired by your your little house. And, you know, being first or being early, an early adopter is not always easy. And so you, you made it look great and really inspired a lot of people. Oh, that's very kind. And I'm continuing to be inspired. And Ethan, the, the fact that you're pulling this podcast together and getting it out to people is inspiring. It it's going to turn people on. It's going to make them rethink how they live and why they why they live the way they do and that's kind of amazing and awesome. Well, that's, superhero. Thank You're you. You're the superhero. All right. All right. <laughs> well, one thing that I like to ask all of my guests is what are two two or three books or um, if you're not a book person, resources like films or even people, just two or three resources that inspired you along your tiny house journey that you'd like to share with others. Oh, sure. I think any book by Lloyd Kahn, you know, Shelter Publications has done so many amazing books. So, uh, you know, I think one is called Homework. I think that was the first one. There's Rolling Homes, I think, is another one. But any anything that Lloyd does, I, I don't care what it is. It's it's inspiring for me. And then another book that I really have gotten a lot out of is called Material World by a guy by the, I think his last name is Menzak. And it essentially chronicles how people live all over the world. And it has these families standing out in front of whatever home they may have, whether it's a Mongolian yurt or a big palace in Abu Dhabi. And all of their worldly possessions spread out in front of the house, including cars and boats and stuff like that. And it, it's just this, it's only a couple pages for, for each country, but it is so sobering to see the difference between how a family kind of in Guatemala, go back to Guatemala or in Laos or uh, any, you know, Russia, all of these different countries all over the world and how they live. And, and, Oh, it also offers this narrative about what their prized possession is. And it's like usually the Bible or the Quran or something like that, but it's, fascinating. And then I think the last one that I would reference is, gosh, there's so many good ones. 
I'll just leave it at two. There, I have too many to mention, I think, off the top. I mean, there are so many, you know, I love Jay's books. I love Deke's books. There, there are too many to kind of reference. I guess, I guess from a technical standpoint, uh, Building Construction Illustrated by Robert Ching. Chin, Chin, Ching, I can't remember. I think it's Ching. Uh, it was a book that I got when I was in architecture school. And I, that thing was uh, ear tagged heavily um, through the building process while I was building my house. Just a, a lovely uh, illustrated book on how to build stuff. Yeah, I think that that was a recommendation. I had that book while I was building my house and I think you recommended it in Go House Go. Yeah. Which those were two books that really helped me along the way. Oh, good. Good. Well, D Williams, I want to thank you so so very much for being a guest on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Ethan. This is this has just been a treat. Thank you so much to Dee Williams for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes, including links to Portland Alternative Designs, photos of Jolene and Dee's first tiny house, all at thetinyhouse.net slash 064. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 064. Now I want to tell you a little bit more about our sponsor today, which is the guide Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is a comprehensive field guide to help aspiring tiny house builders make the right choices for their unique homes. In it, you go through the decisions that I made, what I ultimately decided for my own house and why, and how those decisions affected the overall project. I'll help you identify key choices and understand the relationships between them so you can plan your house effectively without spending countless hours researching. The guide has helped readers save hundreds or even thousands of dollars on their tiny houses by avoiding common mistakes. And most important, it will help you feel confident about the choices you're making because you'll know they're the right decisions for you. To learn more, head over to thetinyhouse.net slash THD. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD and use the coupon code TINY when you check out for 20% off any package. Well, that's all for now. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.